0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In 2005, David Roberts and two of his mountaineering friends caught sight of what appeared to be a granary beneath an overhanging cliff, thousand feet above a Utah ranch. After rappelling down the cliff, he and his companions discovered a settlement and a mystery. This enormous granary was large enough to hold 57 bushels of corn, weighed a ton and a half. Yet Roberts and his friends, some of the most experienced climbers in the world, had enormous difficulty reaching the site. In fact, they were the first people to reach that remote site in more than 700 years. So, how could the ancient natives have managed to lug so much grain up this sheer cliff, especially considering there's no conclusive evidence they possessed rope technology? For more than 5,000 years, the ancestral Puebloans occupied the Four Corners region, and just before 1300 AD, they abandoned their homeland in a migration that remains one of prehistory's greatest puzzles. Neighbors such as the Fremont likewise flourished for a millennia before migrating or disappearing. In The Lost Ones of the Old The Lost World of the Old Ones, rather, his new book, Roberts continues the hunt for answers begun in his classic book, In Search of the Old Ones. David Roberts is author of twenty-four books of a mountaineering adventure, history of the American Southwest, and he'll be in Utah for a couple of events this week. In Salt Lake City at Weller Bookworks, that's on Friday at seven p.m. and then Saturday seven p.m. back of Beyond Bookshop in Moab. David Roberts, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah.
1: Thank you, pleasure to be on your show.
0: Appreciate you uh, t- uh, coming on with us. I wonder if you could uh, take us to that uh, that adventure in in two thousand five. This this is uh, Range Creek, I believe, right? This is where you found this uh, yes. this granary up uh, uh, halfway up the cliff.
1: Ranger. Range Creek is a canyon in the Tavopitz Plateau, just west of the Green River and Desolation Canyon. And for 50 years, a rancher named Waldo Wilcox kept everybody out, and unlike most old-timer cowboy ranchers, left every single Indian artifact, Indian being his word, uh, in place, so that when he finally, in his relative old age, had to sell sell the place, he sold it to the state of Utah, the archaeologists realized this was the most pristine tract of land that had been inhabited by the Fremont or any other of the old ones, uh, anywhere in the southwest, possibly anywhere in the country. And this unleashed a bonanza of uh, competing demands for for what to do with Range Creek. A lot of people... And the Utah government wanted to turn it into a hunting and fishing resort. Uh, Fortunately, the archaeologists won out. But when I got a chance to go in there, because I was writing for National Geographic, um, my friend Greg Child and I were authorized to go check out these really obscure, remote granaries way up, as you say, a thousand feet above the creek itself. The one that, that I opened the book with is one of the most mind-boggling sites I've ever seen. It's, it's uh, halfway up a 150-foot overhanging cliff. And how the Fremont got there, let alone built a granary and stored all that corn, and we regularly retrieved it, is a profound mystery. Also an amazing accomplishment.
0: Yeah, you and your friends had uh, modern equipment. Right, the Fremont.
1: Yeah, I don't think the uh, the Fremont had ropes and delay devices and carabiners and spring loaded cams, which <laughs> is how we right. how we had to wheel to
0: get to yeah. the place. <laughs> Unlikely they had they had those things, uh, but uh, I th- I think uh, you've th- there are other places, right? This the, the Fremont and others uh, would store their their grain up in these precarious places.
1: It's clear that. Uh, the reason for that kind of storage is defensive. It's a way to guard your... If, if you're facing starvation and there were lots of famines in the Southwest, uh, the most precious thing you can own is corn, beans, and squash. So you've got to store that someplace where other people can't get to it. It used to be thought that the threat was from nomadic tribes such as the Utes and the Paiutes. But they don't appear to show up until after the abandonment. So the going theory now is that in, in really hard times, the Fremont and the Ancestral Puebloans were raiding each other and killing each other. Uh, but that would dictate a date something like 1250 for that Range Creek granary. And instead, we found out it was built and used about 1,000 A.D., which was well before the desperate famine, and in fact, at a point when the uh, Fremont were thriving. So, so much for our theories.
0: Mm-hmm, right. It's a
1: great mystery. Uh, uh,
0: I was, uh, <laughs> there's a funny passage in the book, and I want to talk more about Waldo Wilcox, who's, uh, he, I think rightfully so, seen as a hero in preserving uh, Range Creek. Um but you have a passage in the book where he's he's presenting his theories. He you know he walked through these areas for many years, just alone essentially. And now you've got a bunch of archaeologists there, and he's he's putting forth a theory, and an archaeologist sitting next to him is is disproving of that theory. Um, but he, he then uh, goes on to uh, to talk about how he uh, how archaeological students can can get mistaken as well. Uh, and in one passage, um, I, I think it's Waldo is, is out in the back country. He sees a, a skull protruding up, and he and he puts a pot over the top of the head. And then I wonder if you could tell me the the reaction of the grad students who come back.
1: and okay. yeah. Many years ago, Waldo was hiking way above Range Creek, and as you say, he found a skull coming out of the ground, a burial site, and he actually took not a not a pot, but a what Waldo calls a corn grinder, uh, a, a matate, a basin, stone basin in which the ancients used to grind their corn, and he inverted it to cover the skull so that it was actually a, a, an act of reverence so that it wouldn't be uh, uh, pothunted or looted by later comers, and just, just an instinctive act of reverence. So he turned the matate upside down, put it over the skull. And when the uh, archaeologists' grad students got in there, Waldo told them there was some neat, neat stuff, Indian stuff, as he put it, sort of pointed up there. They, they did an all-day exhausting hike. They came back, and they said to Waldo, we made an amazing discovery. We found out that the Fremont buried their dead with matates covering their skulls. <laughs> and Waldo sort of <laughs> chuckled and said, Yep, and I will bet I can tell you right where that was.
0: <laughs> Which you know that illustrates so there's some difficulties. You you've got to be trained, and and uh, the theories evolve, right? That's uh, that's. Uh, I think there are some some theories that have evolved in the interim between uh, your previous book and and this one.
1: Yeah, the, the one reason I wrote my sequel 19 years later was that much of the archaeological research from 1995. 96, that I reported in the first book, has been, if not modified, completely overturned in the almost two decades since. So I wanted to catch up on—this I, 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 is not just a treasure hunt uh, in my book, but I'm really trying also to represent, for the general readers, the best of the new serious archaeology. Um, so— there are a lot of new theories about what's what was going on in the prehistoric Southwest that I, I think are pretty exciting, and I hope I can convey that to the readers.
0: Well, uh, I wonder if we could. I want to get back to your your search, and there there's some tensions between preserving the, these these beautiful sites and and maybe uh, you know over appreciation. I um, wonder what the new new research is telling us. That the big mystery, of course, is the disappearance. Not only the ancestral Puebloans, but the Fremont.
1: Yeah, um today's Puebloans hate the word disappearance because folks in Zuni, Hopi, Acoma, Taos and the other Puebloans today are definitely uh descendants of the ancestral Puebloans. So there was definitely an abandonment, but not a disappearance. Hmm. Uh, okay something caused folks all over the Colorado Plateau to move south and east towards the Rio Grande and towards the um, middle, middle of northern Arizona. But as for the Fremont, who were the folks in central Utah and distinct from the ancestral prevalence, north of the uh, what we used to call the Anasazi, <clears throat> it does seem to be a real disappearance. No one has linked... The Fremont was any living tribe today, and the, what happened to the Fremont is a complete mystery. There are various theories, but none of them has even more than a few shreds of evidence to, to support them.
0: What are the theories?
1: One theory that seems almost crazy is that they became the Kiowa, and we know the Kiowa is a plains people, nomadic, but... There are linguistic connections between Kiowa and the Eastern Pueblos, which also is very hard to explain. Um, Another theory is that they were assimilated by the Utes and became inbred, not inbred, ingrown, I mean, uh, well, assimilated, so that today you can't tell a Ute person who possibly had Fremont ancestry from the rest of the Utes and another theory is that they all died out. Hmm. Uh, times are pretty tough in central Utah at the end of the thirteenth century, and you suddenly find very, very few tiny little pockets of what look like very desperate communities hanging on so we don't we really don't know I mean few are much harder to d- detect archaeologically than the Puebloans farther south. Hmm.
0: Now, I've heard some uh, tie the the migration of uh, of the ancestral Puebloans and and such to changes in climate, and then, of course, obvious parallels to today. I wonder if you have you heard heard that or?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm in Utah right now, down southwestern, down St. George, and we've been climbing every day, and we have seen so little water, I mean, water running in creeks or coming out of springs. I I am always astounded by how folks could live and thrive prehistorically when the water supplies are so meager and so sparsely located. Um, We do know that in the latter half of the 13th century, a lot of bad things happened. There There was a severe drought from 1276 to 1299. Some, some people think it didn't rain for 24 years. Um, there was possibly the near extinction of the big game. They, they could have been hunted out. Um, the lack of rain would have meant it was almost impossible to grow corn, <clears throat> which was the staple food for all the people. <clears throat> so things are getting quite desperate. Uh, but the prevalence today say that there was also a spiritual reason for the abandonment, and that if you ask folk, folks at Hopi, they'd say, well, our gods commanded us to move on, that migration has always been part of our pattern. Um, pretty hard for archaeologists to prove or disapprove dis- disprove that theory. Hmm.
0: You, you've talked about um, linguistic patterns being a possible clue. Is, is uh, uh, that apparently is a line of inquiry that's that's being pursued.
1: The linguistics of today's Pueblo, Pueblo people are so complicated and so mysterious that you have something like 10 different languages among 21 Pueblos uh, belonging to four completely distinct linguistic groups. So that Zuni, for instance, is like Basque in, the, in Spain, a language that has no known cognates anywhere in the world. And Zuni and Hopi, Pueblo is not very far apart, have languages as different as English and Chinese. So if they're all descendants in some way of the ancestral Puebloans, why do they have such completely different languages? Um, it's, it's, it's one of the profound riddles of the Southwest.
0: Mm. So the Zuni is... I guess it's unique in that way, like Basque is in Europe.
1: it's unique in the United States, as mm-hmm. far as I know.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, so, what other what are the clues? Do we can we can we match up artifacts in different places? What What other clues can we look for to to trace migration, especially with the Fremont, where you say that's the biggest mystery?
1: Um, it's very hard to find artifactual proof of migrations. But one of one of the chapters I I where I delved most deeply into the present-day research is did the folks around Mesa Verde region in southwestern Colorado end up in the northern Rio Grande around Santa Fe? And There are two, two, two schools of thought. The folks in, in Santa Fe say, "No way, we were always our Puebloans were always here." And the researchers up around the Four Corners say there was a massive migration to the Rio Grande. And they try to prove it by linguistics, by pottery, by structural design, by oral tradition. And though uh, some lay readers might say, you know, who cares where the Tewa, as they're called, came from? I found it fascinating. I think it's it's it's, it's sort of cutting edge science, and uh, it's long enough ago so that you can't simply ask the the inhabitants of Santa Clara or Oke Owenge today where they came from, and get a reliable answer. It's too it's more than seven hundred years, and oral tradition gets pretty fuzzy over spans like that.
0: We're talking with uh, David Roberts. Uh, He is author of 24 books on mountaineering, adventure, and history of the American Southwest. His essays and articles have appeared in National Geographic, National Geographic Adventure, and Atlantic Monthly, among other publications. Lives in Watertown, Massachusetts. And his new book is The Lost World of the Old Ones, Discoveries in the Ancient Southwest. He is in Utah for a couple of events. First of those is Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City on Friday, 7 p.m., then in Moab on Saturday at 7 p.m. at Back of Beyond Bookshop in Moab. And he's my guest for the hour here. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com or on Twitter. More following this break. Every week, there's new science, new technologies, and new discoveries that affect our health, our world, and our environment. And every week, Living on Earth is there to report, analyze, and comment to make sure you know what's happening and how it may affect you. So don't miss out. Tune in right here to hear what we have to offer. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's this week and every week on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
2: Public Radio attracts an audience that is focused on professional attainment. Do you have a product, service, or degree that can further their career
0: growth? Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For more
2: information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215.
0: I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. My guest is David Roberts. He is a mountain climber author. He's author of some 24 books on mountaineering, adventure, and the history of the American Southwest. And he's out with a new book. It's called The Lost World of the Old Ones. He continues the hunt for answers about these ancient peoples of the Four Corners region. That he began in his classic book, In Search of the Old Ones. Building on breakthroughs of recent archaeologists, uh, he paints a fuller picture of these enigmatic ancients and recounts his uh, last 20 years of exploits in the backcountry, adventures which range across Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, southwestern uh, Colorado, illuminating the mysteries of the old ones, as well as more recent uh, Navajo and Comanche. And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. And our email is upraccess at uh, uh, gmail.com. I want to talk a bit about, in this segment, uh, David Roberts, uh, about this the, this tension between appreciation of, uh, of these ancient peoples and perhaps over-appreciation. You uh, open the book talking about Range Creek, and then uh, talking about the, the effect, uh, unintended I'm sure, that, uh, that some passages in your previous book, In Search of the Old Ones, well, had. I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: Sure. Um I was very disturbed to discover and probably should have anticipated that my first book would be treated by some readers as a treasure map because I subscribe to an idea called the Outdoor Museum, which argues that if you find something really like a, an intact pot in the backcountry, you should not, it's, it's illegal to take it, obviously. I don't even touch it. Um, but the, the, a lot of people think you should report it to the nearest BLM ranger or National Monument um, official so that they can repatriate, I mean, they can collect it and either put it in the museum or try to repatriate it. I don't believe in that. I think you should leave it there. But that's fraught with the risk that someone else will take it. And I started and ended my first book with descriptions of... Um, narratives of two of the most amazing discoveries I had made in previous years. One of a beautiful, intact, corrugated pot somewhere on Cedar Mesa, and then later uh, an even more amazing, uh, tightly woven, d- d- design-covered yucca basket that was at least 1,500 years old. And... I didn't give any locations, it didn't name any canyons, I just said somewhere on Cedar Mesa. It turned out that this that all kinds of readers took this as a, a kind of a challenge to go find those objects. And because of that I was I got a lot of criticism. I was reviled for for turning loose a, a legion of treasure seekers. Uh, people have found the pot, but fortunately the Scores of folks who have been there so far have not taken it. Uh, I don't think anybody's found the basket, uh, or almost no one, and they they've left it in place. But but I was very very upset to think that that in 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 the name of saying how of arguing how wonderful it is to find something on your own and to leave it there, I had put perhaps, perhaps too much of an emphasis on on discovery and the, the, you know, the quest for El Dorado and the, the Indiana Jones kind of image of search, searching for some precious object, and if you're Indiana Jones, grabbing and running. Hmm. Uh, one of my chapters is about how much change I've seen on Sierra Mesa, which is my favorite place in the Southwest, in those last 20 years. I mean, all kinds of people pick up pot shards and arrowheads all the time and do take them, even though that's illegal. But, you know, to go to a place that once was just covered with pot shards and to find it almost denuded of them is a really disturbing um, experience, and it's happened a lot to me in, in recent years, and I can't escape the, the uh, conclusion that my own book has played a significant part in turning those people loose on Cedar Mesa,
0: And you talk about uh, and I guess this is a, a function of perhaps our digital age uh, and I don't know maybe a, a culture shift or continuation of a, of a certain kind of culture of appreciation if you could call it that. i quote you here that uh, some sites uh, can be swarmed over with chattering hikers who've been lured to the place by directions in a published guidebook or by GPS coordinates posted on an internet site, and so so I guess some areas are just being overappreciated. I don't know if that's the right word.
1: Yeah, I mean you know it's hard to say overappreciated, but when I first went to the Citadel, which is the the, the site you quoted the little passage from, um, I discovered it on a solo four day backpack in, I think, 1993, in November, didn't see another person in four days, didn't know where that ruin was, found it by accident, and it was a, you know, it was a transcendental experience. If you go there today in prime season, you can see 20, 40, 60, maybe even 80 people all standing in this very small, under the under and around this very small ruin. And it's, you know, it's on the Internet. If you Google the Citadel, Cedar Mesa, you'll give you very explicit directions how to get there. But, you know, is 60 people, uh, a travesty. I mean, I was just in Zion two days ago, and you ride the shuttle bus and wait in line with hundreds or even thousands of people, and you think Cedar Mesa's pretty unvisited compared to... Scion of the Grand Canyon or Bryce or Canyonlands or Arches, Uh, it's a a dilemma I haven't resolved in my own own mind because the one good thing about National Park and Monument status is that it probably reduces looting because there's much more law enforcement. And Cedar Mesa, sadly, is also being hit hard by by looters today, uh, people who really up the ruins and take everything they can completely illegally mm. and there's no possible the, the BLM just is to stretched too thin to police that kind
0: of activity uh, so I wonder how uh, uh, does this need reconciliation uh, I, I guess with the idea of an open museum is that I guess some open museums will be much more attended than others you, you advocate for this idea
1: um, I, yeah, outdoor museum, my call or, it.
0: or outdoor museum, yes, excuse me.
1: Yeah. Um, Steve Lexon, archaeologist from University of Colorado, who I think is the most savvy and brilliant of all the Southwestern archaeologists, thinks that the outdoor museum is not only romantic, but slightly elitist in, in the sense that, you know, sort of like saying, well, all... Just, just I and my buddies get to see this place, but we're not going to tell the, the hordes where it is. And that a, a national park like Mesa Verde, where you, you can take a guided tour of Cliff Palace, is actually more democratic. But on the other hand, I've, as I've hunted down um, collections made as early as the 1880s, and gone to museums and seen that stuff that, for instance, Richard Wetherill dug up in 1893 has lain in drawers for more than a century and nobody looks at it or does anything to use it for research. It seems to me that sticking it in a drawer somewhere in a museum is almost as bad a fate as as letting it be pot-hunted. It's just I, I just can't wrap my
0: mind around it. I think it's an insoluble dilemma. Hmm. Uh, here's a, uh, a question from Kylie in Moab, who's emailed us at upraxis at com. She says she's wondering if you have visited Huck's museum in Blanding. She says she just visited the museum and was astounded at his huge collection.
1: <laughs> yeah. Huck's is sort of the epitome of the rampant collecting that used to happen and it still happens all over the Southwest, all over the country. Um, one one thing that really drives me crazy is that we're we'll, one of the few countries in the world, maybe the only country in the Western Hemisphere, in which you can collect legally antiquities on private land. If if you find something in Mexico or Guatemala, uh, something rare in prehistoric. It belongs to the state. You have no right to dig it up and put it on your mantle. You actually do have the legal right if you find a pot on your backyard in Blanding or or some acre you've leased for raising, not leased but owned, you can dig up anything you want and put it on your mantle. And so collections like Hux and Blanding are the fruit of decades and decades of which you have to call pot hunting, whether it's legal or not. And go on eBay today and, and Google Amasazi pot, and you'll find pots for sale, and every one of them claims to have a, a certificate. Oh, no, we found this on private land. It's totally legal, but this is unprovable. We know that a lot of the stuff that's on eBay is dug illegally on federal lands or even state lands. It's uh, it's It's tragic to me.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with David Roberts. His new book is The Lost World of the Old Ones, Discoveries in the Ancient Southwest. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free number. Our email is upraccess at gmail.com. And you can get to us on Twitter. Use the handle at Utah Public Radio. Uh, David Roberts, I, I'm wondering, I, I'm sure you're aware of the, the federal crackdown in Blanding, 2009-2010. Uh, and I was, I was curious about the aftermath, and in fact, Brandon Loomis in the Salt Lake Tribune in 2011 uh, went back and uh, interviewed a, a few people, and one of the key questions he had was, did that crackdown have an effect? And what he came up with was, yes, in the Blanding area, it, it has at least reduced illegal artifact hunting, but some of the people wondered if it's, if it's really tamped down in other surrounding areas
1: the landing bust was both heroic and atrocious in the sense that the the the, the research that, that went into to documenting how many folks in Blanding owned illegally owned um, artifacts was was really prodigious and well done but the crackdown was you know the center frasers gestapo style, you know, busting in, in the middle of the night, handcuffing people, arresting them, you know, coming in with heavily armed militia, as it were, and and sadly, three people, including one of the most prominent Blanding citizens, committed suicide in the wake of the bust. Uh, if you if you talk to anybody in Blanding today, they they feel that this is the worst example in recent years of the federal. I mean. Utah is rife with the conflict between states rights and federal rights. Uh, after all the Utah legislature voted to to force the feds to give up all public land to the state except the five national parks. So that tension is is, is nowhere sharper than in Blanding. It did, I think, cut down pot hunting in Blanding. I have no idea whether Hunting that goes on in places like well St. George, where I am now, is even faintly touched by that. Um, so again, both heroic and atrocious.
0: And this, I, this is cultural, isn't it? I mean, you, the, there's legal aspects to it. Uh, I'm thinking of Waldo Wilcox, who was apparently, according to your book, it, taught by his parents that we we don't dig up these artifacts, we don't we don't take them.
1: Waldo's one of the heroes, maybe the hero of my book, because uh, his cowboy wisdom was quite at odds with what the archaeologists say. I mean, Waldo had a theory that uh, what he found in Range Creek was evidence that the first people there were what he called the little people, and and he thinks they were much shorter than... Any other Native Americans, and the, then the Utes came in and wiped. Uh, I'm sorry, the Fremont came in and wiped out the little people, and then sometime later, the Utes came in and wiped out the Fremont. Well, no ar- archaeologists would believe this, but during the years I hung out with Waldo in in 2004 to six, and I still visit him regularly in Green River. I, I really came to love and admire his take on the landscape and his 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 sense of of, there's a kind of sorrow about the the loss of this pristine paradise that he 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 owned and 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 raised cattle on for fifty years and had this profound respect for the Native American presence there Often archaeology—it's—I mean, archaeology per se is destructive, and some of the archaeology I saw being done in Range Creek once it was opened to the state was pretty poor. I thought it was not good archaeology, and Waldo was appalled by it. So I sort of took Waldo's side on this. He's also an amazing character. He's full of uh, uh, bone mots and witticisms and has a wonderful, wry sense of humor. He also knows this landscape better than anybody who ever lived, hmm. including the Fremont, probably. Because as he says, the Indians didn't live so long. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, you quote uh, Kevin Jones, I think it, I, I don't know if he's still the state archaeologist. Um, he, he pointed out that it wasn't law that protected Range Creek. it was It was this rancher.
1: Yeah, Kevin, made the, made, who was then state archaeologist, made the point at a symposium that, what a, what a paradox, that all the laws we enact since the Antiquities Act of 1906 did not have the, as much of a preserving effect as one rancher with locking the gates at either end of his road and, and keeping people out and just leaving everything where it was, and... Uh, would that there were more Waldo Wilcoxes in the West? Hmm. He's virtually unique.
0: Before we go to break, I uh, <laughs> want you to tell tell us this story. Uh, you know, I'm learning about Waldo Wilcox. Of course, he was in the news and with the Range Creek and everything. But uh, he apparently supplemented his income uh, at times by capturing uh, mountain lions alive, selling to the zoos.
1: Yeah. I would have given anything to see, to go out on a hunt in, let's say, 1963 with Waldo. And he took his two dogs and somehow managed to capture a mountain lion alive and carry it back to his homestead. And some of the lions he sold to zoos, which was done perfectly legal, and others he... uh, Waldo had a sideline of... Uh, running a kind of hunting camp. So he would set the mountain lions loose when he had some rich dudes in to, to hunt, and then the rich dudes would go out and try to shoot the, the lions, the mountain lions. Waddle is full of remorse today for what he did. In fact, when he kept the, he used to put the mountain lions in what he called a grease can, which is a 50 gallon drum, just to keep them hostage while keep them alive but confined while he either waited for the hunters or transported them to a zoo. And I was walking with him around the homestead one day, and he, he looked at one of his grease cans that was still in the yard, and he said, If I go to hell, it'll be because of how I treated them lions. Hmm. <laughs>
0: yeah, amazing. Yeah, like you say, there's there's been a shift. He'd, <laughs> he'd get in trouble for that now, but... Yeah. Uh... Uh, just amazing
1: I mean, after all Hemingway was celebrating shooting lions in Africa at the same mm. time
0: yeah yeah let's take another break when we come back I want to talk about this uh, let me quote you this just sentence from the, from the epilogue of the book uh, you talk about the, uh, the the search and the and the physical effort you say what what I gain as a reward for my search is that elusive but inexhaustible blessing wonderment. Want to talk about that and an interesting comparison that you make between mountain climbing, which has been another big pursuit of yours, and uh, this this search for the old ones in in the Southwest. Uh, More following the break
2: on the next On Being. And all of a sudden, I
0: realized that this computer was made out of people, and the computer became much more interesting to me once it was made
2: out of people technologist and blogger Dana Boyd on how technology is changing the lives of teens and relationship between generations. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us.
0: Sunday night at 8 on Utah
2: Public Radio. Congratulations to Shawn Michael, head of Utah State University's Department of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning, for his national honor of the 2015 Outstanding Administrator Award. The competitive award is granted to administrators who instigate support or inspire improvement in the education and experience of students. UPR congratulates Shawn Michael, recipient of the National 2015 Outstanding Administrator Award.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is a mountain climber, author David Roberts. He's author of 24 books on mountaineering, adventure, the history of the Southwest, and his new book is The Lost World of the Old Ones. In this book, he continues the hunt for answers about the ancestral Pueblos, the Fremont, and other peoples of the Four Corners region. Uh, begun in his classic book, In Search of the Old Ones. He is in Utah for a couple of events. On Friday, he'll be at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City. That's at 7 o'clock in the evening. And then on Saturday in Moab, back of Beyond Bookshop. uh, And that is at 7 o'clock as well. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. David Roberts... uh, in your epilogue, you contrast one of your big, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it hobbies. It's more than that. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's passion, mountain climbing, with another of your pursuits, which is this this uh, pursuit of the old ones in, in the Southwest. You call mountain climbing a, a, about yourself. It's essentially about yourself, and uh, searching for the old ones is about them. What if we talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. My twenties and thirties, I, I was very, very passionate about mountaineering, mainly in Alaska. I went on thirteen expeditions, made a lot of first descents, um, but had had friends killed climbing. And uh, but it was for fifteen years the most important thing in my life, and and then I started to sort of re-examine it because. You know, nobody cares about whether you climb a mountain except yourself and, the, and your comrades and your peers and your rivals. And there is something, once I started writing for a living and interviewed some of the world's greatest mountaineers, I realized there was a kind of, almost a narcissism about it, that it was about the, the, bragging about one's deeds, or, or if not bragging, at least privately celebrating them. And it didn't do any good for other people. It didn't really broaden one's perspective on life. And almost by accident, in 1987, I wandered into Bullet Canyon on Cedar Mesa and found unrestored ruins. I'd been to the national parks, but I'd never seen unrestored ruins where you still have corn cobs and pot shards and flint flakes, dirt flakes, lying in the dirt, just as they'd been left 700 years ago. And rock art with these enigmatic petroglyphs and pictographs. And it aroused a curiosity about who were the people who who had made these things, and what were they all about? And that's become the passion that's really supplanted mountaineering for me, though I still climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, just, it may be too cut-and-dried a to distinction, but for me, the, the abiding... Um, motivation for what i'm doing today which is hiking canyons and remote mesas looking for vestiges of the anxious is because it's not just about me it's not about the first ascent of the something or other ridge on the something or other peak it's about trying to figure out what was going on with the ancestral park ruins i also have a pet peeve about professional archaeologists because most of them are not climbers the, <clears throat> the ancestral problems and the Fremont were genius climbers. So, of course, that's part of the affinity. The, the ancients, the old ones, were amazingly good climbers. And whether they did it strictly out of defensive reasons or, or even out of art for art's sake, uh, I've often wondered about. But professional archaeologists, by and large, ignore places like that granary in Range Creek, as marginal, unimportant, minor, not nearly as important as the big open flatland Pueblos, and I think they've missed a, an important part of the whole um, a- ancestral the the whole cult- culture of the uh, of the ancient ones by relegating what you find all over Utah, for instance, in the remote canyons to to a, to a marginal status.
0: Hmm. I'm curious what what is the emotion you you come across an artifact you haven't seen before or maybe you have or or a petroglyph this evidence of of ancient peoples. What's what's the emotion that you have?
1: If you go to a museum and you see a a beautiful pot, you get a, a, a turn second burst of admiration and that's about it and you know there are museums all over Utah all of the southwest full of gorgeous pots and baskets and other artifacts and sadly it becomes almost numbing you know they're just sitting there in glass cases and and your mind kind of shuts off and the whole experience you know you can in an hour you can see 40 pots you find one pod in the back country where you don't expect it, you know, it's hours and hours of transport and unforgettable experience. There's something about it being in the place where it was left by, by some Native American many centuries ago that, as you say, inspires wonderment and not just that 10 seconds burst of admiration.
0: I guess uh, you know some people might might go out, might enjoy an outing such as that. Outing seems a little too leisurely, you know, uh, strenuous hike or whatever it is, uh, and that's it. What what keeps you coming back time after time? To,
1: to, to I'm not really at. sure, but um, a hike or a backpack in this gorgeous country. I've always said that you know hiking around Utah would be superb experience if there were no prehistoric presence. But the fact that around any bend you might find something that very few, few people have seen and it's really ancient and that we can't really figure out, turns it into much more than a great outing. It's a, it's a quest, it's a, it's a it's exploration really and the, the thrill has never diminished for me even though I've been doing it now for 30 years. I'm going out a couple of weeks for one more jaunt into places I haven't been. It's, it's incredible how how many little canyons there are all over the Southwest that are so seldom visited. Um, I don't think there's another landscape anywhere on Earth that quite matches the Southwest mm. in this respect. I mean, there are places in Africa that are equally dazzling, or in China but how often do we get to go there? I mean, here mm-hmm. we have it in our backyard in Utah. And I'm, I'm also, in a sense, I, I think it's great that the millions go to the national parks where you cannot be alone for more than 10 seconds, by and large, and keep the other canyons <laughs> relatively unvisited so that mm-hmm. folks like me can go out there and Hike all day and not see anybody else. So it, I don't think you can do this in Europe anymore. For instance, mm,
0: right, right. So is that? Uh, do you you purposely you discover something, or you 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 have a great experience? Do you, uh, you kind of keep that to yourself? You, so so well, that I can can't be say I keep it to myself if I write about uh, it. That's right. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> that, that's right. But but I'm guessing you don't write about all of all of the things you. You see, or do you? I'm sorry, say yeah. Do you do you write about all of the all of the places that you found, or or do you keep some private?
1: Oh no, I I would say I write about one twentieth of what I've seen. I mean, I've, I've really written what I. I don't think I'm going to write much more about this kind of stuff. But I, I mean, ultimately, I do hope that it inspires other people to, to to go out and look for themselves. It's not easy, I mean it's you 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 develop an eye for where a likely place for rock art or ruins might be, but uh, it's it's just as rewarding and I, if anything I want to convey in, in my book it's the it's the awe and wonderment and excitement and and transport of such activity i mean that's why I keep doing it.
0: Just have 30 seconds left, it, I, I was going to ask you what your favorite place is. Is, is that Cedar Mesa? What, what's your favorite place?
1: It's Cedar Mesa, that's mm-hmm. for sure. I made maybe 80 or 90 trips there, and I'm going to be heading back there in a couple of weeks. Hmm.
0: Well, the very interesting book, it's uh, out now. It's uh, The Lost World of the Old Ones, Discoveries in the Ancient Southwest. Uh, David Roberts is the author, and uh, he's in Utah for a couple of events that uh, you can uh, go to. Uh, first of those is on Friday. It's in Salt Lake City, Weller Bookworks, 7 o'clock. And then on Saturday, David Roberts will be at Back of Beyond Bookshop in Moab. That event also at 7 o'clock. David Roberts, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tom, and thanks for reading so diligently.
0: Well, appreciate it. Uh, coming up tomorrow, I hope you'll join us for something called the Family Acceptance Project. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.
2: Utah writer, Gina Wickwar. Sometimes when you hear a person say something silly like, I lost about a month of my life, you shake your head and roll your eyes. But I shall say it. I did lose about a month of my life. I mean that figuratively, of course, but it was an experience that was, in that strange linguistic way, literal, too. I don't mean to suggest I was out cold for a month, but I was certainly not my normal self. My three kids chortled heartily when I happened to mention that on the phone. Don't you just hate that? It was, in fact, all pretty simple. I fell. Not far, just down four carpeted steps as I was going upstairs to bed. But I fell backwards and landed on my head on our stone entry floor. According to my husband, who reached me in seconds, I was bleeding and unconscious. Bear and Peach, our two medically trained dogs, did great vet work, madly licking my face, as Vin called 911. An ambulance and a hook and ladder arrived in our cul-de-sac in seconds to whisk me away to Logan Regional Hospital. I remember nothing about that, nor the CAT scan, the cutting off of my blouse, the head and shoulder braces, nor, saddest of all, the wonderful, at least I think it must have been, helicopter life flight to McKay D.' Another CAT scan by a brain surgeon there, and God bless us all. While I was pretty banged up, it showed I was pretty good after all. Four days at McKay D., mostly forgotten except for the last three minutes of the Super Bowl that for some reason I managed to see only to sink back on the pillow in sorrow. My Seahawks got plucked in the last three seconds. Two days later, I was in a van ride back to Logan's Sunshine Terrace Rehab. I was really praying for another helicopter ride, but I guess budgets are tight these days. That was on the 3rd of February. I left rehab the last day of February, so you can see what I mean about a loss of a month. But... Let me tell you, if you have to spend a month in a small but lovely room with a TV, tons of CNAs, physical therapists, nurses, attendants, doctors, and old and good, good visitors, that's the place to be. I was treated like a queen, though instead of my ermine trimmed robe that I had been sent out for dry cleaning, I was wearing a blue hospital gown, plus a clean white head bandage instead of my crown. Other than those two little drawbacks, I was in rehab glory, and I really mean it. The rehab folks were kind, loving, and always asking what they could do for me, always wondering how I felt, always bringing in flowers and cards, and always, always being thoughtful. I often wondered as I lay there if I could be so kind and sweet to someone who is often pill loopy or sleepy or simply out of it. I just don't know, but I do know that every single one of my rehab pals was an angel. I'm home now and feeling better every day with the tender love of my husband, dogs, and friends. So, you see, I did lose a month of my life in one sense, but let me tell you, I gained a decade of kindness, cheer, love, and care I wouldn't have encountered anywhere else, at least not all in one place. Thank you, Rehab Pals. This is Gina Wickwar.
0: This is Bill McLaughlin with Exploring Music. Ever wish you understood great music from the inside? Well, come put your head under the hood with us as we try to figure out what makes the Jupiter Symphony tick. Also, Beethoven Fifth, Brahms Second, Tchaikovsky Pathetique, and Sibelius Second. That's Under the Hood with the Masters next week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at one, and Monday through Thursday night at nine on Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the
1: College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Don't forget to stay tuned for Living on Earth coming up today at 10 o'clock, followed by performance today at 11.